Right now on Fast, gearing up stocks stuck, mostly in a holding pattern as investors get ready for key data on inflation and the earnings season kickoff with banks at the end of the week. Your market checklist before the July juggernaut kicks off. Plus, prime time, Amazon Prime Days start tomorrow. Is this the start of the epic back-to-school and fall retail rush? And could this be the beginning of the end of the consumer spending spree? We're going to go inside the numbers. And later, the big lift for rideshare stocks soaring. Disney's bummer of a summer rolls on. And is now the time to bet on the sports betting boom? I'm Courtney Reagan in this evening for Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. Live from the NASDAQ market site on the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Courtney Garcia, Steve Grasso and Guy Adami. And we start with the markets bouncing back from a losing week. The Dow jumping almost 210 points, snapping a three-day losing streak. And the S&P and NASDAQ also closing higher. The top sector performers today, industrials, healthcare, and energy. Industrials now up almost 6% over the past four weeks. The gains come days before a key inflation data read this week and the kickoff of earnings season. Wall Street hears from Pepsi and Delta on Thursday, and the real fireworks come Friday, of course, when the big banks kick off earnings season. So how should investors position themselves ahead of the key numbers? Tim, what do you make of today's trading? Just sort of a little bit of a hangover from last week as we wait for the CPI number, some more details from some of these key Yeah, I think it's been directionless. I, I think what's, you know, we're all reflecting more upon the move over the last few weeks. And what's interesting going into this earnings season, the bar is probably reasonably low. Uh, but you know, we all know that operating uh, income and essentially margins are probably flat to down small. Um, we know sequentially that EPS is supposed to come in about 4% year over year down 7. Um, if you Think about the banks. We actually have a lot of banks that I think are much better than their fundamentals. And I think they're, they're, the valuation there for that sector, uh, as opposed to some other sectors, looks pretty interesting. I think we've gotten some, uh, some green light, at least in terms of their capital return programs, buybacks and whatnot. And I think J.P. Morgan and Bank of America, for example, are places where I think investors can actually uh, find valuation upside. Uh, as we look at the broader dynamic, it, look, it's, it's everything from the Fed that was out there very vocal today and still hawkish to interest rates that aren't going to change, even though CPI Wednesday is probably going to be dovish. You named some of those big banks. Any of the regionals look attractive? I mean, they've been all over the place and volatile moves you don't normally see from those names. Any opportunity there ahead of ahead of hearing more of the details of what's going on beyond below the surface? Well, I, I tell you, I, I look at some of the the, the names, uh, even a, you know, a Truist or mm-hmm. who is now at this point maybe even growing into Money Center Bank. But I, I, I think you know, I own the KRE, and I do believe that valuations got to a place where, even though it's impossible to assess the flight. Uh, essentially the, the capital flight in the digital world we live in, uh, valuations are pricing and recessionary credit trends across the group. Okay. Now, Steve, what do you make of this recessionary trend idea? Some people could say maybe we're already in one. We never know. Yeah, until I, after- I, I agree with that. I, I think that we could have already been in a recession. I think if you look at FactSet's numbers on earnings estimates for Q2, they're looking for down 7% or so. Q3, 0.8% up, troughed. And then Q4, plus 8.2%. Hmm. That would be the recession probably already took place. Okay. So if that happens, maybe it was masked by the energy outperformance uh, last year. I think that everyone is so crowded on the bear side of the trade that maybe they missed the trade going forward. And if you look at, I think their prediction for the S&P is up 9% hmm. from here. That would upset everyone's uh, dance card, so to speak, on the portfolio side. So I think we are in for 
something we're not expecting, which is higher markets at the upper end of a range right now. Hmm, that's interesting. Courtney, what do you make of everything that you've seen in the last couple of days and how the Fed may be putting all of that into play, plus the number that we're going to get on inflation, knowing that the market is putting, I say, something like 82 percent chance that the Fed does hike in July? Yeah, which we need to see because obviously we got jobs numbers early last week, which blew expectations. And then they're actually much more muted than we thought on Friday. So you really you could take either side of the coin here. But I think we really need to see how those inflation numbers come in. And I think if we do continue to see inflation coming down, which we have been seeing, they're going to eventually have to follow the data. And that's really what the markets have been pricing in. But ultimately, you're still not going to see any sort of cut this year, likely. And I think that's what people need to get on board with, because people have been rushing into all of your your high valuation companies. When you look at it, the S&P 500 versus the equal weight S&P 500, which is not as concentrated in just those seven companies, Mm -hmm. trades like a 20 percent discount right now. And I think that's where you do want to take the idea of there's plenty of areas in the stock markets right now that can take advantage, even if we're in this higher rate environment, which we very well might be. Hmm. A lot of Fed speak so far this week. Guy and Mester saying, look, rates are going to need to move up somewhat further, given some stubborn inflation. It looks like we're going to get another rate hike. Courtney doesn't think, of course, that we're looking at a cut anytime soon. What do you make of what's going on? Yeah, nor do I. I'm with Courtney. And Mary Daly, San Francisco Fed chair uh, president, I guess, said, you know, the lag effect is longer than we thought. Right. A couple more hikes. I mean, that's pretty hawkish stuff. So I think there's something for everybody. You know, in terms of the banks, I do think they're important. I'd say Tim makes a great point in valuations. Then I start to look at it. Are we in an environment where they should be trading at sort of historical norms or should you sort of ratchet it back? J.P. Morgan at 145, for example, is probably closing in on two times tangible book, maybe one and a half times book value. That's historically not ridiculous, but in this environment, it might be a little bit. Now, the stock has traded well over the last couple of weeks, but the run up in banks in earnings, I don't know. I mean, it looks like maybe a little too much too fast. I think the regional banks, and Tim has made this point as well, are interesting, and in the absence of bad news, which we haven't had any now for quite some time, they'll start to levitate higher. The problem, I think, is there's bad news coming. And speaking of bad news coming, Tim, City is downgrading U.S. stocks. They see a 9% pullback in the S&P 500, 4,000. I, I mean, I don't think that's that extraordinary of a call here, given the move we've had. And, and it, you know, it's been this has been the least liked market. We talk, I talk a lot about where sentiment and, and kind of... Uh, Positioning indicators are telling us, and they're they're pretty much near the bullish side of the of the ledger. Uh, the reality is that most strategists had the end of the first quarter being a you know a point where stocks were really going to get. Cr- killed and that the seasonal stuff that took over in the second quarter, some of it spurred on by what should have been a banking crisis and in fact was a catalyst for the S&P. So um, if you're looking at it on, on, a, on a forward multiple, look, I, I think it's very difficult to, to pound the table on stocks here. I think we are going to get a pullback. I think you have a dynamic where valuations in the second quarter are going to show that companies, look, a lot of companies, not the ones we're talking about in the banking sector, have difficult with pricing power. We're going to see this. Um, it's actually the case of reflation or at least disinflation coming you know, kind of back into the market. And yet there is still margin pressure from higher labor costs. So I think uh, I think there's higher interest rate costs, a trillion dollars of floating rate debt out there. Corporate America is going to struggle on the operating margin. And and I think that's something that's going to be more under the gun. But again, we know that sequentially we're going to be down four percent. So at at some point you have to say, where have we priced a lot of bad news in versus where stocks have taken us? The last three weeks have been, you know, I mean, last week was down small, but it really wasn't. And, and mega cap tech is still, you know, Apple's just off of you know, all time highs. I mean, it's hard for me to say equities haven't had a huge run. And you're starting to see a little bit of, of value getting bid re- very recently. Everyone talked about seven stocks, eight stocks that have been leading it. It's been more than that. 
But now you're starting to see energy sort of tick off the, the, the trading range, healthcare tick up. So maybe you're starting to see a little bit broadening out of that bullish case. Not not so sure if it lasts, but we're starting to see that. I was going to say a little bit broadening out from those seven stocks, Guy. I mean, that everybody wants to pile into all the time. What can we do to share the love? Yeah. Well, look, Carter's going to talk about energy in a second, so I want to steal his thunder. But to Steve's point, there has been a bit of rotation, this stealth rally in some of these energy names, specifically in oil services. We'll talk about that in a minute. And I think healthcare is still a place you want to be. And industrials have traded well. And airlines, by the way, all seem, well, Delta specifically, breaking out. So there's clearly some rotation going on. Of course, the problem is that the seven names that we mentioned seemingly every day, <laughs> most of them, uh, not, you know, Facebook notwithstanding, is probably the only one are pretty excessive in terms of valuation given their historical norms. I mean, Microsoft right now, although it traded lower today, is trading close to 31 times next year's numbers on a company that, quite frankly, still great growth, but growth that has been slowing over the last few quarters. Hmm, You guys teased it, so let's go there. Let's turn to energy and look a little deeper. The S&P 500 energy sector is one of the worst performers so far this year, but the chart master sees the tide turning for commodities and the broader space. So let's bring in Carter Braxtonworth of Worth Charting. Courtney, thanks. Um, You know, there's so many things to consider, obviously, when trying to determine if a real laggard is finally an opportunity. But before we look at the charts, the really curious thing is, is it even a sector? We know that the entire S&P 500 sector is 4.2% of the S&P, and three stocks are half the weight of that 4%, right? Uh, Exxon, Chevron, and Schlumberger. So, you know, talk of a sector uh, independent of all the jobs that it, it is responsible for, it is a very small part of the market. Nonetheless, uh, I think there's an opportunity and let's try to figure it out together. The first of four charts, this is a ratio chart. We're simply looking at uh, a line that depicts the relative performance of the S&P 500 energy sector to the S&P 500. And we know, of course, that you have that massive rally coming off of the COVID low and energy outperforms for two years, but where does that outperformance stop? It fails to the penny at that downtrend line, which you can see annotated there. Now, if we look at this same chart with a second set of lines, you'll see that the sell-off leaves us essentially this give back of the past eight months at the 1999-2000 relative low, which is to say, with the exception of COVID, when there were no cars driving, no planes moving, nothing was happening, we are now at an all-time relative low, not seen since the dot-com peak, 99-2000. And I think ultimately you get a bounce here, hence the arrow that you see. Now, as to the sector itself, absolute. So this is the XLE, or the sector itself, and it is an uptrend line. That part is incontestable, and we know that it indeed has bounced to the penny off that trend line repeatedly over and over and over. Final chart, same chart, but just putting in the downtrend line the intermediate downtrend line in effect um, over the past six months. We have converging trend lines here. We are into the apex. The question is, make your bets. Are we going to break down or move up and out? I'm in the latter camp. I think one wants to be overweight energy. Carter, what's your timeline on this trade? Now. Now. So be <laughs> overweight right now. And, I mean, and for so how? And- if I- <laughs> Which is to say, I mean, when you're trying to, when you buy something, you think it's going to happen now. Does it have to happen today or tomorrow? But I mean, other, if I thought it was three months from now, I guess I'd hold off. But the okay. idea is now, and we shall see. 
All right. Thanks, Carter. Well, you might have been right today and had a pretty strong day here today. Thank you very much. Guy, what are your thoughts on this trade? Yeah, I agree with him. And we talked about OAH briefly, but I'll say, I mean, that's that stealth rally that we talked about from 248 or so in the OAH to 310, I think today-ish over the last month and a half or so. I think that's caught a lot of people off guard. I think it continues because you can make a very reasonable coaching cage on valuation for all the components of it, specifically Howard Burton and Slumberger. So in the earnings, I think you stay with it. And I'm not trying to get on any analysts out there, but I think Wolf on July 10th downgraded Exxon Mobil to peer perform, which is fine. I think it was the exact wrong time because I think Exxon in earnings who had a great quarter last quarter, is probably going to rally in earnings this quarter. Yeah, it looks like Exxon actually was the leader today in the group. Tim. What's interesting about what Carter said also, you know, he brought up, reminded us that the S&P, the energy is 4.2% or 3% of the S&P. I've been saying for a long time I think that's going higher. So far it hasn't. Um, but when I get back to Schlumberger, guys talking about oil services, Schlumberger is, is they've beat or hit for the last 17 quarters. Um, they have a balance sheet that's as good as it's ever been. Um, they have offshore oil demand. We're actually seeing significant drilling demand in some of these uh, far-flung places that at least at times during bull markets in the energy space, you've actually seen oil services names rally. So uh, I've been long this name for a long time. I feel really good uh, about the consistency of the earnings profile and the margin profile. It's one of the few places where margins, I think, are improving. Uh, Some of their costs are actually coming down. uh, And I think you can own it. It it has moved, as Guy said. I mean, it's been a 25% move in Schlumberger from June 1. So so pick your spots here. And, you know, maybe maybe it's even some... uh, you know, a more conservative guide in the earnings number. But I, I think you want to stay long. Courtney, what do you think when you look at this? Do you think you have to be careful when you're choosing these names as we're kind of uncertain about what's going to happen in the economy when you're looking at a broader fundamental analysis for this group? Well, and I think that's why this group has been lower than I think their valuations and the supply and demand constraints really justify they should be is because everybody's expecting this recession to happen that hasn't happened and people are expecting demand to fall off a cliff that hasn't happened at a certain point in time you're going to find people rotating back into this and so i actually i really i love everything carter had to say i think tim brought up some really great points here but i think you want to be in energy right now all right let's see if this contrarian play turns out in our favor well coming up some big names catching our eyes why schwab and lyft shares are in the green and how you should play those jumps that's coming up next but first Looking for a used car? Prepare to pay up. Why prices are dropping, but not as fast as you may hope. Our traders are kicking the tires on that one when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Used car prices logging their largest month-over-month drop since the start of the pandemic in June. But the pace of the declines may not be as fast as some had hoped for. Of course, those looking for a used car. Our Phil Abo has more. Hi, Phil. Hey, Court. You know, when you look at these numbers, and let's show you again what we saw in the month of June, according to Cox Automotive, through the Mannheim Used Vehicle Index, they tracked the data every month. And what they saw in June was a decline of 4.2% compared to May, which is what a lot of people focus on. But also keep in mind, compared to June of last year, down more than 10%. However, the retail inventory It did come in a little bit. It's a little tighter market in the used market. 45-day supply was 49-day supply in the month of May. When you look at new vehicles, this is the determining factor right now in terms of what's happening in the used market. And the pricing remains strong. Why? Because it's still a relatively tight new market. That said, when you look at General Motors, Ford, Toyota, Stellantis, really all of the automakers, they have been gradually increasing their production. And as they increase production, it gives people who are in the market a greater choice. And that's why we see the declines that we've seen on the used market. 
As for the auto dealer stocks, four of them today hit 52-week highs. And in the case of both AutoNation and Group One, I think that they're in an all-time high. These stocks have had a heck of a year this year. Remember, they, they do well both in the new and the used side of the business, and they're benefiting right now. That's why these stocks are all... Um, not all of them, but almost all of them at 52-week highs. Bottom line is this, Courtney. This is welcome news because people wanted to see these prices come down. But I'm not sure we're going to see big declines like this as we go into the rest of the summer. In fact, the folks at Cox think we're likely to see a more normal market when it comes to used vehicle pricings. So it's going to stabilize here over the next several months. But certainly for the month of June, it was welcome news. And what's going on with profit margins for a used car versus a new car? Well, I mean, that comes down to how good you are in terms of what uh, the selections you're making. The profit margins are always going to be much better for the dealers on used cars. That's just the way it is. They don't make much money on new vehicles. The profit margins are clearly on the used side. And if you're as as smart as some of the folks like at CarMax, the reason CarMax had a great quarter is because they were really stocking up on those vehicles under $20,000. And those are hot right now. People are Mm -hmm. looking for that, especially in this interest rate environment. So if if you've got a good team, and most of the dealership groups are pretty darn good at this, some are better than others, you can really do well in this market. Got it. Thank you very much, Phil. Courtney, what's your take on the autos right now? Yeah, I think this kind of the same argument where everybody thought also home building was going to fall off a cliff right now because everyone said, oh, interest rates are higher. Nobody's going to buy a house. Nobody's going to buy a car. But I think you're kind of seeing this interest rate fatigue. Everyone's saying, okay, inflation's going to be higher. Interest rates are going to be higher. People aren't going to put off buying a home or buying a car forever. Um, but what you're seeing is, especially now that there are new more cars out, people are going to go to the new cars. You're going to the new houses because if you're going to have to pay extra interest for these things, you're not going to want to pay for an upgrade here in the near future. So I think you're likely going to see a lot of demand here because there are just too many people who needed new cars. They had to get old cars, you know, two, three years ago. So you're starting to see that demand pull forward. I think that's likely likely going to continue. Steve, what's the play here in the car space? Well, so when you look at the used car prices, the biggest thing that affects an Avis or a Hertz is their fleet pricing. That's the biggest thing that goes into the into the profitability or I should say the value of those two stocks. So if those prices come in, then you want to be a seller of those two stocks, of rent-a-car companies. The problem is what Phil touched on late in that that piece, interest rates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you can't afford to buy a new car based on the interest rate, that's why used car prices haven't come in as precipitous as people would like them to come in, because you you go to buy a car, it's double what you wanted to lease it for two years ago, a year and a half ago. So that's not a market anymore. So the used car market is still pretty fluid on that side of the equation. I've been making money on Rivian, which is a total different deal, but it it really comes about with the supply chain issues freeing up. Mm So if supply chain is open, these companies will do better. Jamie said, mm-hmm. Well, I tell you what, I, I, I think in other places, first of all, I'm long GM, and, and they're not getting a lot of credit for their EV business, but they are getting some upgrades on their OEM business, and, and I think that's interesting. Getting into the retail side, where we kind of started this, because the used car business has really been, I mean, look at, look at O'Reilly over the last six months. Look at a stock that's run 49%. Look at a stock that's actually growing their margins, and they have some of the best distribution out there. It gets back to what Courtney was saying, is that the consumer, at least in the auto space right now, it, it's, and you mentioned housing, and I would also bring up airlines, because these have been you know, what, what tend to be kind of early cycle cycles uh, coming through and they're coming through on the late side. So, um, again, I think 
O'Reilly is a name you can continue to stay with. Margin share gains and evaluation that makes sense to me. There's a lot more fast to come. Here's what's coming up next. Schwab brokers some gains and Lyft levels up. Both names in the green. So should you be a buyer? The traders are digging into those trades next. Plus, retail's last resort. All eyes on Amazon as Prime Day gets ready to kick off. Will the consumer make a dent? And where will their dollars get spent? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. An upgrade for Charles Schwab is our call of the day. JMP upgrading the stock to market perform as it sees the firm benefiting from stabilization in the brokerage and wealth management industries. Analysts also saying that downward revisions to guidance may be behind us. JMP setting a $73 price target on Schwab's stock. That's about 25% higher than today's close. Steve, what do you make of this one? So here's the problem I have with this. I, I love Schwab. I love, I, I, I love what they do. I love the segment that they operate in. But the problem is when you look at all of these stocks that were dragged down when we had the mini crisis or, or major crisis, however you want to look at it, it was a very brief crisis. They haven't bounced back as much as you would think they would bounce back. So you, even the ones that were saved or the ones that you thought were going to be okay haven't really shown great performance. And to me, what that means is, A, there's going to be a higher regulatory burden. We all knew that. B, when you could transfer a fund from your, from your iOS device or your whatever device that you have like that, that's scary for these groups of stocks. So the majors seem to be the only ones that you can set it and forget it and buy them. These are a little bit iffy to me, even if they're a great quality company. So they haven't bounced back like you thought they might have. Guy, do you think that they should bounce back and then therefore agree with this call? All right, so I'd, jump, I'd lump Schwab in with the regional banks because if you okay. go back and look, it was March yep. of this year when Schwab went from 73 down to the 52-week low, which I think was like 45 or something-ish, maybe on the screws. It has bounced, but nearly commensurate with the broader market, number one. I actually think, like I started the show, in absence of bad news for the regional, Schwab will do this levitation into earnings on the 18th. It doesn't mean by, by any sense their problems are over, the regional banks' problems are over. But again, in the absence of bad news, on valuation alone, these stocks will continue to levitate. Okay, the stock was higher in the session today. Meantime, Lyft topping the tape today, surging 9% as the company's new CFO assumes the role. Aaron Brewer replacing Elaine Paul, who had been in the position about 18 months. The move comes after David Risher took over as CEO in April. Now, Lyft has struggled to keep up with chief rival Uber this year. The stock's flat in 2023 compared to Uber's 73% rally. Tim, Lyft is in your lags trade. It sure is, and it's been <laughs> lagging. I mean, it's been, you know, people, we've had so much fun with this. There's a picture of me that they show every time I look particularly happy, which <laughs> must have been the day that I thought it was the smartest idea. Like, it's down 8% on the year. It's not been that bad. And, and I would argue that this change is very important. I think Lyft's had a, 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 they've done a terrible job communicating to the market. And I think actually the, the confidence in the management team is part of this underperformance. Um, the, the, the dynamics in terms of their core business uh, really aren't that much different than Uber. And if you think about where they are, uh, and we talked about this dynamic in New York City last week, the, the, the places where there actually is growth 
growth and there is this normalcy and, and essentially this, this post-COVID normalizing environment, uh, they're actually seeing margin accretion. They are seeing drivers come back. It is somewhat, as I say, idiosyncratic to the macro that's facing them. So um, I think you can stay long here. I think a change in management and a change in communication with the street means as much to this stock as fundamentals right now. I think there's been no confidence in the communication. Courtney, what do you make of this stock? Do you think this could make a difference? New management, you got a new CEO, relatively new at least. I definitely think it can make a difference, but I think one of the bigger concerns I have right now with Lyft is just the fact that they are in such competition. Everyone puts them with Uber side by side, and Uber has a much more diversified revenue stream when you look at their entire business. And they just have a lot more cash on hand that they can really put a lot more into marketing. They can keep their prices better than Lyft. And I think that's the problem with these two companies. When you're on your phone, you can very easily look at Lyft versus Uber and just pick whichever is cheaper. And when Uber is really able to have that pricing pressure that I don't know if Lyft can compete in that, I I think it's likely going to still put some pressure on them, unfortunately. Well, coming up, Amazon primed and ready what the two-day shopping event could mean for the retail space and if consumers are ready to spend. More on that next. Plus, teeing off at takeoff, how you can watch live golf tournaments while waiting for your flight. Grab your nine iron. We're swinging in on that one when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing out in the green, snapping a three-day losing streak as investors await key inflation data later this week. The Dow jumping more than 200 points. The S&P and the Nasdaq both up about two-tenths of a percent. The industrial sector, that led the gains today up nearly one and a half percent. And with a number of names in the group hitting 52-week highs, Quanta, Ingersoll, Eaton Corp, and more, all trading at those levels. Meanwhile, shoppers counting down to Amazon's Prime Day event. Deals will begin rolling out at 3 a.m. Eastern time. Set your alarms. But but will retailers benefit from a rush of demand from the consumer? We're joined now by BMO Capital Markets, Simeon Siegel. He specializes in retail and e-commerce. Simeon, thanks for joining us. I guess just to start off, let's set the table for what consumers are expecting and who could benefit here. On one hand, I could see consumers really clamoring for discounts because we're living in this era of very high inflation. On the other hand, because we're living in this very this very high inflation environment, I could see consumers not wanting to spend at all. So what's going to happen this year for Prime Day for spending for Amazon and other competing retailers? Dun, dun, dun. I feel like, you're like we're outlining the, uh, the next latest show out there. Um, Courtney, I think, I think you're totally right. I think the seesaw here is just this nonstop back and forth. I think what you and I know, so I think to set the table, I think what we know, the consumers will get deals. Whether that is good as a company, like I'm, I'm a retail analyst, but I'm also a consumer, or whether that is good for a consumer, I think will, uh, will be the question you have to ask. But I mean, listen, we can see not only are you going to get the normal tech-related deals, but plenty of the companies you and I talk all the time about, The Gap, Victoria's Secret, I mean, they're showing up as being profiled for, for prime deals. So I think we know they're going to come. I think, to your point, the question is, will people spend? And I can tell you, earnings in this group generally ended about a month ago. People are still spending. You give them a reason to spend, and they are. And so I think that that's this interesting dynamic that's there as well. What do you make, though, on where we are in this world of promotions? It seems like for a while we were able to wean consumers off of needing a discount in order to buy but now it seems like maybe they're creeping back in. Levi talking about price cuts. You've got this big event, obviously, that's now become annual with Prime Day and shoppers sort of waiting to buy at this time. What does that mean for margins going forward? 
you know, it's a topic near and dear to both of our hearts. You know, I talk about this a lot. I, I think that what the pandemic allowed for, right, there were a lot of those silver lining comments. And I think one of the ones that was there is that after a decade plus, since 2008, retailers gave up all of their pricing power. And in three months in 2020, they got it back. And so the question was going to be, who was going to hold on to that, even if it meant selling less? Who was going to realize that price elasticity says you can make excuse me, more money if you focus on your price? And so I think the problem is it's much easier said than done, and I get that. And so a lot of retailers jumped into that promotional fray. And so you're absolutely right. I mean, that hurts margins. A couple of years ago, we saw the best gross margins we probably will ever see because you got all that price given inventory scarcity. And now the question is people are trying to make sure they don't have too much. Because this past quarter, we finally started seeing inventory get back in shape. But so I think what's happening now is the consumers regaining their power, which to your point is happening not because they want to, not because the consumer is doing well, but because they are suggesting that they need to. That's when you're going to see the real retail management's put to the test. That's when you're going to see who can say, I built a healthy business. I have healthy brand equity. I'm not just going to chase the 60% off sale to drive another unit. And it's, it's hard to do. Most will fall into that game. But I think you're absolutely right. The ones that want to protect their margins will say, let's get through this and let's do healthy promotions, not reactive ones. Hey, Simon, it's Courtney here. This is Courtney Garcia, the other Courtney, <laughs> not to confuse you. Um, but I'm curious, too, with the retailers. So Amazon is having Amazon Prime Day, but you're seeing a lot of other competition, like Macy's is coming out, Target's coming out. And how much of this is they kind of have to keep up with the Joneses? If Amazon's doing it, so does Target, so does Macy's. And is this really them chasing a consumer who can't handle higher inflation? Or is it just the fact that they're just trying to compete with their competitors here and having to cut, having to make those same price cuts. Is it problem with the consumer or is it just this, this snowball effect of once you have a promotion, everyone has to have a promotion? So I think it's such a great point. I was actually just talking to my team about this. Historically on this day, we would look and see how many other companies made a reference to Prime in their email and they tried to do it in some kind of a punny way. So they weren't literally saying, here's a Prime deal, but it was very clear. And that number definitely feels a lot less powerful. I think people are looking at this. Like, listen, I think Prime Day stands for something else than it used to. I don't know if it has as much excitement. I don't know if it's more transactional. But I, I think that retailers right now, brands right now, are looking at their business and saying, we are walking into, we are in this summer period. We're about to hit back to school in a little bit. Let's decide where we're going to chase and where we're not. And I don't know that they feel as much at the whim of big events like Prime Day. I think that in the past, it would have been, we need to price accordingly, we need to buy accordingly. I think right now, it feels at least there's more of a holistic perspective on running the business. That's a good thing. Doesn't mean they don't participate as we're talking about. Doesn't mean that those, those brands that you're talking about that you mentioned aren't going to run deals right now. But it doesn't feel as much of a sense of urgency. It, I, it just doesn't seem to be as much of a catalyst, perhaps, that they are rolling behind in a way that they would have several years ago. So I don't know if that says something about their approach or if it says something about the perspective of the day in general. But I think what hopefully people are taking, what hopefully the companies are taking out, is that right now there is all of this should be holistic. There, there's never a scenario where no promotions shouldn't exist. But thinking about them strategically, I think, is really important, as opposed to being pulled along by another company, by a competitor's approach to discounts. So, of course, we know that's easier said than done. Simeon Siegel, exactly. thank you very much for joining us.
We'll check Good in with you that. again soon, I'm sure. Tim, you were looking at some of the names in retail that were strong today. Ralph Lauren, Lowe's, up much stronger than the tape. Yeah, it's been extraordinary. I, I mean, I would put I would put Lowe's and Home Depot I- into a slightly different category. But I look at a Ralph Lauren, which has had a, a heroic run. And it's really been about the global brand kind of elevation and where they are actually raising margins. But more than anything, they're actually raising free cash flow. So the re-rating in this company is, is something that I think is a result of the stronger getting stronger. Uh, as Simeon pointed out, there's really been uh, a, a very efficient focus on inventory, and some of the brands that are ahead in this uh, are doing well. If you look at some of the apparel retailers, whether it's an Urban Outfitters, whether it, it's a, a children's place, I mean, a couple of these have been on massive runs because I think there's been significant short interest out there. And I think the retail sector, all this resilience we're talking about in the consumer has been a reason for some of these to really outperform over the last not six months, but probably six weeks. And I think you have to be careful on a couple of those because I think a lot of this is really just uh, getting back to expectations that were slightly better than terrible. So, I, again, Ralph Lauren is a name that I think you can stay with. Yeah, Ralph Lauren is very an interesting case study. They've worked really hard on rebuilding that brand equity. Did you just correct me? I said Ralph Lauren. You said Ralph Lauren. <laughs> I'm married. No, I'm kidding. I'm probably totally wrong. I mean, so, no, just kidding. (laughs) Well, coming up, a new deal for the Saudi-backed golf tour, Liv. The details of the partnership and the thinking behind this tie-up, even as the PGA Tour and the Saudi PIF are working out details of their merger agreement. We'll break that down coming up next. Plus, a surprising summer slowdown at Disney World. And we've got the data to prove it. More on that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Saudi-backed golf tour Live trying to grow its exposure and its TV footprint by signing a new deal that will bring its tournaments and content to Reach TV, the network airing in over 2,500 airports across the U.S. Reach and Live announced the deal last week, and the first tournament aired over the weekend. It would seem an odd time for a deal of this nature to get done, as the details of PGA Saudi Public Investment Fund partnership are still being ironed out. Here to take us inside this new deal and the broader sports broadcasting landscape, Reach TV founder and CEO, Linwood Bibbins. Linwood, thank you so much for being here with us. You know, obviously this is not the first sports partnership that you've signed. Why is sports so attractive for Reach TV? Um, I mean, thank you for having me first off. Um, you know, live sports is, is, the, is the thing that everybody wants to watch right now. If you and look news, at of course. And news, of course. <laughs> and business news, right. of course. Um, especially for travelers. I mean, you're, you're, you're on a, when you're traveling, uh, you're stressed out. You want to see something that entertains you, takes you away, and, and kind of whisk you away. And if you look at the top 90 of the top 100 uh, broadcast uh, shows this year, they were live sports. So when we see that, we look at what we go where the puck is, uh, the Gretzky uh, line. So we focused on you know, turning our network into a live sports network, premium entertainment, and live business. So that's what we're focused on. But why go with Liv? It seems like a controversial move to take to dip into golf this way. I mean, if you look at our audience, our audience is golf, tennis, um, country clubs. Uh, So golf was always uh, premium and it's always a focus of our audience. So we focus on what does our audience want to see. And, And Liv Golf is different than PGA because PGA is like a individual and Liv is team. So you have team sports which is a big thing for our travelers. So we looked at Liv as a really cool, interesting way of bringing team golf with great names. I mean, the names in there have 25 majors. So it was just exciting to bring those people to our audience and focus on what could we do uniquely. So 
uh, having the exclusive on the not exclusive on the entire thing, but having live on Fridays was a perfect day because when you go with the NFL, we have Sundays already locked in. Having that Friday live, having CNBC in the mornings, I mean, we're really bringing the experience to the audience, uh, one that they want. What happens to this deal if the merger does go through? Are you able to still keep this broadcast? Of course. I mean, the, the whole goal is to keep going. We, we, I have a lot of friends at PGA. I work with them. Um, I like the PGA. I think, bo- I think they both can coexist. They're very different. And as a golfer and people here at golf, it's amazing to see the team aspect of it. I played this weekend and their uh, pro-am. Uh, with Bubba Watson, by the way. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, was, it was amazing. I'm not good. But <laughs> it was amazing to see the team format from something you're so used to seeing as an individual format. I think they both great. I think they're different experiences. And the energy at a, at a live event is like a almost like the waste management open for PGA. Yeah, it has that, that energy. Young, it's hot. Exactly. exactly. But, but, but then what, what happens if live goes away? Then, and it looks more like PGA. I don't think Liv's going anywhere. I okay. think they, they, the audience, who they're bringing, think about who they're bringing to it. It's younger. It's more energetic. They have DJs at it. You know? It's bringing a different energy that it's, it's going to bring a younger audience to overall to golf. And I think that's the win for both PGA and Liv. And so how do you do that if right now on the CW, there's not a high viewership rate for these Liv tournaments? How are you going to do it differently? Well, I'm not. We're going to focus on what we do. And on our audience, our audience is there. We have our audience for over 70 minutes. They, they want to be entertained. Uh, golf is one, one of the things that they, we, we do surveys. We ask questions. Golf is extremely important. Tennis is important. So we wanted to bring them the, the, the kind of live sports that they want to see. And we're focused on our audience. What, what CW does, we can't control. But I think they're going to get it better, too. I think people are gravitating to that local audience. Once they know where it's there, I think it's more about awareness. But once people know it's there and they experience it, they'll be there. Why not go after the PGA instead? Oh, I mean, PGA's a friend, too. So it's not that we, it wasn't one or the other. I think okay. both of them are great. We, we started with team sports. We're going to keep expanding with team sports. And it was, uh, I like the uniqueness of having, bringing something uh, to our audience a little different. All right. Very interesting. Linwood, thank you so much for being here. What do you all make of this? Tim, what do you make of this deal? Well, uh, Reach TV, certainly the non-exclusive part of it means that someone like Reach, who's in airports and is, is kind of everywhere, you know, they're adding something to the distribution to sports. So for the NFL, for Major League Baseball, for whoever, but in this case for Live Golf. So, I mean, that's I think that's the nature of their business. By the way, full disclosure, Guy and I have a streaming relationship with with uh, ultimately with Reach TV. This is a case where I think they have the ability to keep the customer kind of, you know, kind of close to home. And I think that's part of why the non-exclusive works for them and would work for other leagues. Guy, you're nodding your air, head. Well, because air travel is now higher than 2019, which was historic levels. I think it's about 4 or 5% higher. And 90 airports, I think, what is it, uh, 2,500 screens and 31 million monthly watchers. I mean, this is, like, this is a captive audience. So you got to keep, and again, to Tim's point, we have a relationship with Linwood, but you got to keep them on the radar screen. And this makes a lot of sense. It's all about content. They have it, and they have the distribution for it. Let's turn now to Disney. Speaking of travel, the entertainment giant falling today despite UBS reiterating its buy rating on the stock. One potential concern, a quieter than usual holiday at Disney's parks. According to tracking site Thrill Data, Disney World saw its slowest 4th of July in 10 years, while average wait times at Magic Kingdom dropped versus last year. So is this a cause for concern? Steve, I was surprised when I heard about this data. 
Yeah, it's it's odd, and we'd be remiss if we didn't we didn't at least touch on the fact that there's been a political debate between Disney and and the governor of, of Florida. So it's there, and if you trace the stock price, it's definitely refle- reflective in the stock price when that political debate started to happen. There has been a descent in the stock price. Having said that, um, the, I owned the stock for a long period of time. I thought that we were around the pandemic lows. I thought it was due for a bounce. I think that when you look at the some of the parts within Disney, it's worth a look. But I can't get through the headwind of a declining stock price like we see now. And if you look at travel, travel's been through the roof. So there's no explanation right. why that should translate to weaker foot traffic or, or people going to Disney. And that's what, I, that's what I meant when I was saying I was a little confused about the data. Courtney, what do you make of what's going on here? Yeah, and that was my thought exactly. Is it's much more of a Disney problem than a travel problem. Okay. It's not that people aren't traveling. I mean, you just saw, and you mentioned this earlier, 4th of July, we just saw airline travel was higher than it was in 2019. You also saw people um, taking road trips. So AAA had that people were taking more road trips than they were in 2019. So people are traveling. Hmm. They're just not going to Disney. And I think, yes, it could be some of the political problems. You're also seeing it is very expensive to go to Disney now. So for especially a family of four or five, it's not always reasonable, especially when inflation's higher, which does kind of bring you to Disney, where at what point can they keep maximizing that revenue from their parks if they're already maybe maxed out on their prices. Excellent point. I was just thinking that too. And gosh, it's expensive to go to Disney. If you oh, yeah. have other options, perhaps they become more attractive in this environment. Well, coming up, casino stocks hitting the jackpot today. But is it time to cash out of these names? We'll bring you those trades right after this quick break. More fast and do. Welcome back to Fast Money. Casino stocks hitting the jackpot today. Win, MGM, Las Vegas Sands, and Penn all delivering strong performances to kick off the week. Guy, what do you make of the strength here? Some pretty big moves intraday. Win up 5%. Yeah, look at Macau gross gaming revenue. GGR, G- we call it. Well, see, I would have said that, but then Courtney would have said, what's GGR? So I just beat her to the proverbial punch. Thank you for doing that. But I appreciate you saying that. It's up 514% year-over-year, which is pretty remarkable. And these stocks, listen, they all pulled back. I get it. I think there's a concern about China slowing down. I get that. Valuations are compelling. I think you own win, and I think they report second week of August. So maybe they're not going to Disney World. They're going to Macau. One gaming name seeing some huge action among options traders. Mike Co has the action. What do you see in Mike? Yeah, we're taking a look at DraftKings. This one traded 2.4 times its average daily options volume today. Calls outpacing puts by about 3 to 1 in the busiest contract with a weekly 28 strike calls. We saw over 9,700 of those trade for an average of 67 cents. Those were trading throughout the day. And considering the stock ended up on the highs of the day, these are actually profitable already. These traders believe the move can continue through the week's end. Thank you, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune in the full show Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Tim, what do you think yeah. about uh, DraftKings? Is it bullish there? Well, first of all, I think a lot about OA. I'm going to be turning into that. And on dra- I'm, <laughs> I'm long DraftKings. And, and I'm long from probably 15% higher up. And I've been enjoying the renaissance. Some of this has just been a rationalization in the business model. These guys are not cutting each other's legs out at all costs anymore. So I think there really is some profitability there. The addressable market, and this has been the argument all along for online sports betting, is that the addressable market continues to grow. How profitable can they be? I think these guys are, are, are certainly starting to show that profitability. Yep, 8% here today. Well, coming up next, it's already time for your final trades. 
It's time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, Tim. Here's to uh, Ohio, where I hear they're selling a lot of Whirlpool appliances. Again, Whirlpool getting back market share they lost during COVID. I think you stay along this one. Big move in the whole space. OH, Emily, Emily Courtney. Uh, JP Morgan, I think going into earnings here, it's a name you want to you wanna own. I think a lot of the concerns have been largely discounted here. Steve. Trinseo was up huge or huge, depending on if you want hard H or soft H, on Friday. Followed up today with another big day. Guy likes to say price is truth. I think it goes higher. Guy. We learned that our page, Emily, Emily. and you, Courtney, are from the same home. What are the chances? What hometown? Give them a shot. Centerville shirt. Elks. EP. Elk Pride never dies. Elk Pride. Love the Elks. Tim, Elk Pride never dies. <laughs> I, I like. I felt that the minute I walked in today. Right? The, the, Didn't you? You wish yes, you were part of it. Elk, uh, Marathon Elk. Oil. MRO kind. Thank you very much, and thank you for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer.